my great-grandparents told me stories of a mighty dragon that descended on the holy temple. The people had rebelled against God. I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the work of their own hands. In his anger, God turned his people over to the fearsome enemy, King Nebuchadnezzar, the dragon of Babylon, through whom the fury of God burned against my people. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me up like a dragon. The tears of my people flowed like a river, but they could not quench the fires that consumed our land. Into the wilderness we were led, defeated and destroyed. The God we'd forsaken, we thought he'd forsaken us. But even in our darkest moment, God would not leave or forsake his people. Once more, he made us a promise. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. For 70 years, the people of God lived in Babylon. Over time, Babylon began to wither, and a great lion rose from the east, Cyrus, the king of Persia. His armies consumed the world. He set his gaze on the remains of the great dragon's lair, Babylon. There, Cyrus led a cunning attack, and the kingdom fell. Cyrus was a great and good king and did not believe in keeping men as slaves. During the first year of his reign, he issued a decree that freed the Jews. God stirred the hearts of his most devoted people to journey back to Jerusalem and rebuild his temple. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Cyrus went the way of all men. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Behold, Ahasuerus, Xerxes the Great, Under Xerxes, the empire prospered, and so did the Jews, who did not return to Jerusalem. 
Among these Jews was a family of the tribe of Benjamin. They gathered all they could scrape together and headed out from Babylon for the richest city the world had ever known, the Persian capital of Susa. During the journey, both the mother and father died, leaving a baby girl to Mordecai. Little did my cousin know that I would grow to be a woman the world would never forget. You're dismissed, right? Like, what else do we have to say? There you go. I preached a whole sermon. No, I think it's amazing as you jump into this book of the Bible that the Bible does this incredible thing as it tells history before it happens, right? It's called Bible prophecy. It tells what's going to happen. It tells that God's plan and purposes through his prophets. And it's incredible what we saw there of God knowing that this time was coming and knowing of the kingdoms that would come and rise up before the time of Jesus. So we are jumping right into this strange, unique, peculiar book of Esther. We're subtitling called God's Perfect Work through imperfect people. So that means that God is working even through me, even through you. In our imperfection, God works and has his plans. And so today I just want to kind of lay a foundation, a background of what's going on, where, where we find ourselves in this story of Esther. This story is, uh, this, this, this time period is about 2,500 years ago. That's a bit of a difference uh, in the world that we live in today. And so here's where it kind of falls in the Bible timeline, you know, of, I mean, it's right there, right before, even though it comes earlier in your Bible, it's right before the, the 400 years of silence, before Jesus coming. This is, the nation of Israel has been, you know, in its own place. It's been divided. It's been in exile. It's had all of these things. It's making its way back, but we'll see that some people still chose to stay in Susa. And uh, this book of Esther is just fascinating. We don't uh, quite know who uh, wrote the book of Esther. Uh, We know that it was guided and directed by the Holy Spirit because all of God's word is from him. And... um, you know, some, some scholars would say that Mordecai, Esther's cousin, wrote it. Uh, but, you know, it, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange book. It's a unique book. I mean, the, the Jewish people, they love the book. They have great fond memories. They hold this book in high esteem because it's the beginning. It shows the beginning of the, the, the Feast of Purim. You know, Christians, on the other side, um, through the history of the church, we have not known what to do with this book. It's been very complex. For the first seven centuries... The church wrote zero commentaries on this book, right? Zero commentaries were produced on the book of Esther. John Calvin, one of the great Bible teachers and commentators in church history, we have no record that he ever preached on it and never wrote any commentaries on it for sure. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said it's basically a horrible book. He said it should never have been written and shouldn't even be in the Bible. Yeah, ouch. We'll get into some reasons why I believe he might say that later on in the series. But uh, we will look at this story, this thing in particular, this book is just unique. And, like, and so like over the last few decades, I would say that the church in America has maybe embraced the book of Esther more. I don't know if it's this rise of women's ministry and tagging, like finding some, some people that, that have this and we got to find the women to, to preach about, you know, their stories. And 
whatever the connection is. And I would even say that there's been some, some writings about it, some storytelling, some movies made of it that I think been very misleading of what this story is really about. It has been looked at as a romance. We are going to dive into this and see that this is nowhere close to a romance story. Okay? This is not a romance story. So many people uh, believe that Esther and Mordecai were these great, faithful Jewish followers of Yahweh all the days of their life. And, you know, God used imperfect people. I would say that they, we're going to see some things that might shake up your view of these people, but deepen our view of God and his holy word. So let's pick it up. Verse 1 of chapter 1 says this. These events happen in the days of King Xerxes. Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. So right there we see at the beginning the first character that God introduces us to is, as we saw there, Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus and Xerxes. Okay, same guy, different names. Ahasuerus was his Persian name. Xerxes was his Greek name. So depending on what translation of the Bible, you can look at NLT, ESV, NIV, they all have like, okay, we're talking about the same guy there, right? And so how many of you guys have heard of Xerxes, right? Xerxes, you read about him in your history, you read about him and all that he did and his great empire that he had. Uh, there's been a few movies made about him. Most recent one, a couple, 10, year, 10 years back, I don't even know how many years back, uh, is uh, 300, Mike, uh, Frank Miller's movie, 300. Uh, can't recommend it because I haven't seen it. Uh, I tried to see it, didn't work. DVD was scratched up. Uh, I was going to get some history, so I cannot recommend it. I know the previews kind of showed uh, some guys that did P90X a little bit too much and some women not enough clothes on, but um, I can't tell you, recommend it. So anyway, but it tells the story of King Xerxes there. Um, and so he's this great Persian king over the Persian Empire. And so we learn a lot about Xerxes uh, from even outside the Bible. Uh, the great um, father of history, the Greek historian uh, right here named uh, Herod. I had a hard time saying his name. Herodotus, Herodotus uh, tells, the, tells the story of him. So how history was pretty much written down and kept was like whatever nation defeated another nation, they wrote the history of it. And Herodotus tried to be as, like, as like subjective as he could be and investigate and all this stuff. But a lot of times it would turn into a PR campaign, you know, like making it like, oh, we had to take them over because they were terrible people. And this is the beginning of fake news, all right? But, like, he tried to be the best of telling the true facts and going there and interviewing people and getting the full side of things to present this. And so he, he tells us this about, about him of, because we know later on that the Greeks did overpower the Persian Empire. All right, it says right there in verse 1 still, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. The big idea is here is that he is a powerful man. This man exerts his rules in his, his father Darius is, uh, was the legendary king who ruled for 36 years before him. He expanded the empire of Persia, conquering and uh, taking over and capturing other nations and others assimilating multiple nations to come and follow them. So the Persian Empire has different people of different languages, different races, different ethnicities, different religious backgrounds. If Xerxes and his father Darius had any religious background, uh, it is believed that there would be Zotarism. And so uh, they were pagan god. They were pagans. They worshipped false gods. They did not worship God of the Bible. Um, at this point, they're ruling in Susa, which is modern-day Iran. 
And so we're talking away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, away from the priesthood, away from the sacrifices, away from where God's presence is on the earth. And yet we're going to see in this great story of Esther that yes, God does work beyond the borders of Israel, that yes, God even works in pagan godless nations like the Persian kingdom. So Xerxes' father, Darius, has this expansive, enormous empire, has multiple wives and children and a harem and concubines and all this, and because it was believed in that day that you had to show your greatness as a great king by having a huge family. But the time would come, and he's coming towards the end of his life, of like, of all my sons, who's going to rule and reign and who's going to take the throne? And he picks out Xerxes to be the next ruler to rule over his now expansive kingdom, his expansive empire. Here's a picture on the map of what this empire, of how far it reached. This is quite phenomenal because for most of the people in that time, in that part, that, that time century of the world, like this was the world map. Like this was the world. Like, hey, like he's over everything that we know. I mean, he had conquered and ruled over. Could you imagine one political leader, one, one ruler leading in, in over Egypt, Libya, Israel, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, all under one control? That would be phenomenal and, and like to even imagine today. And here's this guy like ruling and reigning over this. So in, in the, their eyes of like seeing that this guy was ruling from over this, like he was viewed as powerful. He was viewed as a god in many ways. He was viewed as a, a, his strength and his might, like nothing the world had ever seen before in this, up to this point in history. His empire was vast. It was huge. It was affluent. It was powerful. Verse 2 says, at that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from the royal throne at the fortress of Susa. So there he is in Susa, this super wealthy city, this place of influence, and he builds this, his, his, his palace there. And it's told that it's, it's like on a hilltop, it's up high, so all the commoners have to gaze up and look up. There's this big, there's this big palace up on the hill, and there's Xerxes sitting on his throne. He's lifted up, he's high and up there. He's high and lifted up, as words they would say. They would see him as the king of kings. They would see him as a son of God. Does this language sound familiar? Right, we've heard these words. Like, so he's like viewed as a god amongst people. And he also has these soldiers that, that go ahead of him and fight in his armies and are his bodyguards and protectors. How many of you have ever heard of the immortals, right? Who wants to go to battle against the immortals? That like sounds like you're going to be defeated before you even start. They're immortal, right? No? And, and that was the whole idea. Even though they, their, their armor was not super strong, he had millions in his, in his army. And so he would dress, they would dress the same, sometimes wear face coverings, so they would all look alike, so that when they went into battle and some of them died, it didn't look like they died to their enemy because they just kept on coming. Like, oh my gosh, these people don't die. They're immortals. And so that was the whole strategy there of fear and influence there. So he was very powerful, seen as a god, worshipped as a god, Money, influence, power, fear from everyone. So what does he do with all of this power, all of this might that he has, all of this influence, all of this glory that he's been given? What does he do? Does he help the orphans and the widows? Does he care for the poor? Does he bring the poor into his camp? No. What does he do? He throws huge parties, absolutely huge parties. Here it is. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all the nobles and officials. He invited the military officers of Persia and Media 
as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. He threw huge parties. And I encourage you as you read through Esther, as we go through this, I encourage you to read it. Grab some commentary on it. I'll post, uh, I'll post this PDF document on our website this week too with it that I've been kind of reading through. Is that you see that Esther is kind of broken up and defined by these different eight, uh, some scholars say eight to ten different banquets, parties, feasts going on. And we see that these important things and these important transitions in the stories happen at these feasts and these banquets. So here's the first of many parties, many banquets, food that they're going to eat. Here you go. The celebration lasted 180 days. A tremendous display of opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. A party for 180 days. Six months of partying. How many of you got, yeah, I partied once for six months. Like, right, like six months of, like, partying. No, like, I mean, that is insane to think of, like, six months. I mean, it's had to be a time of peace. It's had to be a time of peace in the empire because, like, he's got his, uh, he's got his military officials. He's got his nobles. He's got everybody that's important there. And, and you look at it, like, this is thousands of people. at the 127 provinces represented by all of their leadership there in the palace partying for six months. Why would you do this? Why, why, would he, why would he throw a party for six months for this many people spending all this money, all of this? Is he this super generous king that wants to share all he has? Well, Herodias tells us some, some records of uh, the reasons why that they gathered even at this banquet here. Again, this is outside the Bible. Is that he brought them together to pitch his plan to get all 27 provinces behind the idea of what we see in the movie 300 and what you hear about in history of the Persians going to attack Greece again. He's, gets, he's like, hey, my friends, I have a plan to go into Helea of Athens to cross over Hellspout and all this stuff, and we got to go there because you all know this is my father Darius's plan, and he didn't get to see it happen, and we're going to do this, and I hate those Athenians, and I hate those Greeks, and we're going to just see Athens burn. I'm not going to rest them until it burns. That's what he's there, like, gathering them together, this plan of saying this. And so, so how, do you, how do you influence 27 provinces to get on board with this? How do you get them to agree with this? Well, his plan was throw a party. Let them see your power. Let them see your influence. Let them see your wealth. Let them see what you've got. Let them see how strong and you are and how, and how you are this amazing person. Give them place in the palace. Give them the best food, the best drink. Give them a beautiful harem. Let them just lavish gifts on top of them. Give them money. Give them gold. Give them silver. I mean, this is straight up like prostitution happening at this party, okay? Xerxes displays his wealth and shows off what good promises he can make. It's not because he's generous. It's not because he's this good guy. It says right there in the scripture, it says they partied for 80 days a pump and splendor of his majesty. Majesty. Is that another worship word? It's all about his glory. It's all about his name. Here he is. Look how wonderful I am. Look how great I am. You guys come and party. I'm sitting up on my throne. Oh, Xerxes, look how great he is. Look what he's accomplished. Look what he has. Look what he's done. And he's seated up high. Let's cheer again to Xerxes of how powerful he is. And he gathers people from around the nations that he's conquered. He says, we're going to eat, we're going to drink, and we're going to sing, and we're going to play, and we're going to do it for six months. While Xerxes receives all the praise during that time. I mean, think of the expense. How many of you guys are 
wedding planners or event planners, six-month party, like, like, I mean, come on, like, six-month party of, like, all you can eat, like, housing for them, open bar, no rules. How many of you guys had an open bar at your wedding? And I was like, oh my gosh, that was the most expensive, dumb thing I've ever done in my life. Like, I mean, that was like, great idea at the forefront. And then it was like, oh my gosh, like, we, we lost a cousin. We still haven't found that cousin because we had an open bar at the wedding, right? Like, and, and like, so this is like nonstop six months of partying. And like, I mean, listen, like, this thing is so perverse, so out of our mind that like if Charlie Sheen was there, he would be standing in the corner going, no, not, I can't stomach this. This is just, this is too much. This is over the top. This is, this is beyond control. Like if he's to see what's really happening at this party, all right? Some of you have been there. You're like, you know, I, I, you tried that life for a while. Like, yeah, you, you partied for a while. You gave in to this party life. You, you did it and you like, you woke up Two months later, in another state, with a lampshade on your head, no pants. Like you're like, what happened, right? Like, and and so like this, we're seeing that these that these rules they make and all this stuff, and like what they're doing, unlimited power, unlimited wealth. What would you? And we go, we, we can look at that. And we go, man, what? How terrible, how awful of them. All this power, all this wealth, all this money, just used and abused. How terrible is that? Why would they do that? I wonder what you and I would do with unlimited power unlimited wealth, unlimited resources. In this moment in church, we're like, yeah, we'd feed the poor. We'd start a foundation. We'd give it to missions. We'd do this. No, you'd throw a party. You'd throw a party, and you'd get all important people around you to take the picture with you in your important party, to post it on your social media, to show how big and how important you are because there's something inside each one of us that seeks our own glory, Right? There's something inside of us that wants to make our name great. Something inside of us that wants to, to be about us. There's something inside each one of us that wants to be a king, right? And really, if we're really honest, the depraved mind is still the same without Christ's redemption. Without Christ's redemption, if we had that, we would be the exact same. We would, 2,500 years later, we would pursue the same things. Because think about it. We still pursue our own glory, we still pursue what we want, right? It's about me. Look how great I am. Look how glorious I am. Look at the clothes I'm wearing. Look at the shoes I'm wearing. Pay attention to me. Hey, that's a nice car. How did you afford that car? That's so nice. And we don't sit on our high throne in Susa. No, we sit on our leather heated seat in our car. And we go, I've got my throne. And then we pull up into our house. And this is my house. And this is my palace. And look what I've accomplished. And come see all that I have. Listen, we're not that different. The only difference is we have don't we have limited resources? He had unlimited resources. This is why we gather. This is why the church has to come together because there's something inside of us that seeks glory. There's something inside of us that desires to be the king. And when we come together with other believers and we worship together and we remind ourselves and remind each other, hey, you're not the king. There's another king. He sits on a higher throne than our throne. He's not, he's not ruling over a nation. He's ruling over the entire universe. He's over it all. And we have to remind ourselves and sing these songs and worship a God who is on the throne. And you got to remember that you're not the king, that you're actually here to serve. So you go into nursery and you change someone's diaper and you're really reminded that you are here to serve, not to be worshipped. Because it's in us. As much as we, if we condemn Xerxes, we condemn ourselves. This guy wanted to be a God, wanted to be Jesus. Hey, verse 5. When it was all over, after the six months of partying, 
When it was all over, the king gave a banquet. Parties again. We fixed that six-month one. Let's end it with another party. All right? Banquet for people. Great, greatest to the leadest who were in the fortress of Susa and lasted seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace gardens. Okay. Six months of partying. Now that was all the nobles. That was all the wealthy people. That was all people of influence. Now everybody, great and small, within Susa can come to the king's palace and party. We're going to wrap this thing up for a seven-day thing. We've been partying for six months now. Seven days of really hard partying. All the commoners, all the normal citizens, all the people that are blacksmiths and iron workers and take care of the cattle and all this, they come in and they, it's like, my goodness, wow, King Xerxes is like commanding a holiday. Not only a holiday, we get to come into to the palace and party and celebrate with them. Like, it's like kind of like imagine that like people, common people like us, going to Europe and visiting a castle, visiting a palace and going, oh wow, look at that. That's their major ballroom and this is the dining room and here's the family jewels and, and here's, here's, here's where they ate and here's, oh my goodness, look at this. Look at they, look at they have. Look at how great they are. So he wants to expand that everybody sees his greatness. His greatness there before them and see, oh my gosh, isn't this amazing? Look how great Xerxes is. Look, and it took place in the courtyard. It says, the courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Silver and gold couches stood on mosaic pavements of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. That description right there, only other times that such a description of a palace, of a place, of a location, in that way in the Bible, is when it, it describes the temple of God, and it, it describes Solomon's great riches, of like this opulence of wealth, of what is going on here. I mean, like, just those little lines of like, put that verse back there, it says like, of these, these colors of, of purple, Purple, like people, like common people did not know what purple was. They did not see purple. Purple was for royalty. Purple, purple was a hard, difficult dye to find and so difficult to find and so difficult to make because people like, have you heard of purple? Oh, yeah, I heard of purple. I haven't seen purple. I heard it's like blue and red got married and had purple. I'm not sure why, quite what it looks like. And so these people that have never seen purple, they come in and there's purple linens, hang, curtains hanging. And not only are the curtains hanging, how are they hanging? With silver rings. Silver rings, it's like, hey, I, I got this, these, uh, we got to hang some curtains. I got this pile of silver. Why don't we use silver for hanging the curtains, right? Around the marble pillars, right? And then it goes on, it says like, and the ground, the ground was this mosaic of like court, purple quartz and precious jewels that are in there, Right? Like, oh my goodness, like, what, you're walking along, like, trip over, like, what, what was, what was that? Oh, that's just a jewel in the ground that I tripped over. And then we, I tripped on, on the way to go sit on a gold couch. A gold couch, like, the gold? Like, the whole thing's gold? Yeah, the whole thing is gold. We got gold couches for all of these thousands of people to sit on. And then we got some silver ones. We got those, we picked those up at Walmart because those are the ones the kids are going to eat their food on while they watch a movie. They're going to sit on the silver couches while we sit on the gold couches. I mean, like, just, I only want you to picture the, the, the grandness of this. It's trying to present, like, a heaven on earth. He's trying to make this, like, look how great. I mean, the, the wealth is, like, incomparable of how great this is and majestic. Then he goes, verse 7, drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, 
and there was an abundance of royal wine, reflecting the king's generosity. All right, how many of you guys went to a party, and they gave you a solo cup to write your name on it with a sharpie, right? <laughs> he's like, no, here, welcome to the king's party. Here's your gold goblet, your gold vessel, and it's uniquely designed so you know which one is yours when you put it down. Here's your gold goblet to drink the king's royal wine from. Here's your vessel. Go enjoy the party. Oh, wow, okay, thanks. Hey, is, is there free refills? Like, how many refills do we get? Like, what, what's the rules on drinking? How many of you guys know it's a good idea to have drinking rules, right? It's a good idea to have drinking rules. Well, here's his drinking rule. He goes, by etiquette, the king, no limits were placed on drinking. For the king had instructed his palace officials to serve each man as much as they wanted. His edict was, no drinking rules. No drink. Drink as much as you want. Typically, you only drank when the king drank. When the king drank, everybody else drank. If he wasn't drinking, you didn't drink. He's like, nope, just serve them until they've had as much as they want. You can drink as much as you want out of your gold goblet, all right? And verse 9 says, At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So we got this picture. All the men, rich to poor, partying together, drinking together, no drinking rules, tons of food, wealth all around. And the, the women, which is really the wives, are in the other side of the building, other room. How many of you guys know a bunch of men drinking together without their wives around leads to trouble? Because there are women there, but they're women that are paid to be there, that are hired to be there, that the harem is there. The, 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 so deplorable, terrible things are happening at this. Even though this place is a beautiful place, and even though this kingdom is beautiful, I'm showing you this to say, like even looking at the imagery of the series, of like that it was a dark time in human history. It was dark. It was dark and it was hard for women whose power was taken over by them. It was a hard, difficult time for women. For those people without power, without influence, it was a dark time. They were used and abused for the pleasure of others. History would tell us what would happen at these feasts. It was feast that was deplorable. It was disgusting. It was depraved. These women are getting used and abused. Because Xerxes was known as a man that did not deprave himself of any pleasure he desired. Anything he wanted, he went for. Right? One history, one historian tells us of his wife Vashti, who was this beautiful wife. How did he, how did he meet Vashti? Well, it says, one historian says he was originally married to his brother, to his sister-in-law, and he thought she was pretty and attractive, and so he stole his, sis, his brother's wife. Not only that, he stole their daughter. He thought his wife's daughter was pretty, and so he made that his wife also. Her, his wife too. This guy... Numerous wives, harem, seeking out only what he wants. The, the historians will tell us that the last 15 years of his life, he was so consumed with taking care of his harem that he didn't do anything else of ruling and reigning. And the only difference, if we're really honest, if we really are honest, I met with someone this week and was talking about this, and he's like, yeah, if I was in his place, my harem would have been twice the size of his. It's the reality of our hearts right? The reality of our hearts. When, when we condemn him, we have to condemn ourselves. The overindulgence, the overindulgence, the desire for glory, the desire for more, the desire for want, that I'm central, that I'm, everybody look at me, praise me, look what I've done, look what I've accomplished. In times of change, we've moved past 200, 200 2,500 years, 
but it really reveals what is in our hearts and our minds. And so hearing at this point of the story, we're only nine verses in, and we're going, wow, what a wicked, dark, terrible place. What a dark place. Women are abused. There's indulgence in food and alcohol to excess. And you're like, they're, they're like as you read it through these lenses, you're like, there's a shallowness. There's a hollowness to it. There's an emptiness to it. I'm thinking, man, oh gosh, here's this guy. It's like, all we do is worship this guy as king, and then we know through history that another guy is going to rise up and kill him and take him over. Then we'll worship that guy as king, or as God is most powerful, and more people get taken advantage of, and the, the rich get richer, and the poor get poorer, and evil just continues to have his way. And is that all there is? And we read this story, and we go, where is God? Where's God at? What is God doing in this story? Some of you guys, Damien, chill out. We're only nine verses in. God's going to show up. No, he doesn't. That's what makes Esther this very challenging book, is that God is not showing up. It's known as a godless book. God never appears. God doesn't speak. No prophet speaks on his behalf. No angels show up. No heaven doesn't open up and deliver a word personally. There's not these supernatural miracles. There's no mention of Jerusalem. There's no mention of the temple. There's no mention of the presence of God. There's no mention of the priesthood, the sacrifice. There's no repentance of sin. There's no, there's no giving of God's law. There's not even prayers said. There's a time when they fast, but they don't pray. He says, go fast. Didn't say anything about praying. There's this like stunning, curious omission of God in the book of Esther. And how many of us, if you're honest, that sounds like your world? Yeah, that sounds like my life. I've never seen a miracle. I've never had an angel show up and talk to me. I've never heard God's voice audibly. I've never had a vision. I prayed prayers that haven't been answered. And you're like, my story feels a lot like Esther's story. This is dark world, dirty, rich men, fighting for power, fighting for control, taking advantage of the poor, the women, the innocent. And if we're honest, in those moments of like crying out, God, where are you? We can call out and go, God, are you even there? Do you even exist? And if you do exist, are you absent? Do you care? Do you hear? Do you see what's going on? Where are you at, God? Why won't you act? How many of you have ever felt that? Like, it's dark. It's desperate. There's desolate moments. And maybe in your own private prayer, like, God, where are you? It's dark. The world is becoming dark. It's just so, what we even talked about last week, the divide, the hurt, the pain. Women being abused, money being misspent, and men acting like gods. And it just seems like evil plans are making their way. Maybe you felt like that. Maybe you've had those moments where you wonder, where are you, God? And maybe it's, maybe it's seasons, maybe it's moments, maybe it's days. I would say, I, I, even this last week, I had hours. I was just like overwhelmed with like the darkness of our world. You know, have you ever been there? Like, and you open yourself up and you like read stuff like the darkness. I actually, I went to a, a Tri-City Pastors prayer meeting and sitting with these other pastors and we're sitting around talking and, and hearing what so many of them are going through and the challenges and the difficulties of this year and the season and just like the honesty that they're sharing of the, this challenging stuff that they're going through and, and people walking away from Christ and and. The church going through such a hard time. 
from big churches to small churches. Since that, and then one pastor shares and he says, hey, uh, I know we're on a heavy subject, but I want to let you guys know about this organization called 40 Days for Life. And he starts sharing about 40 Days for Life, and it's this prayer movement to end abortion. And he opens up and he says, you know that the Planned Parenthood in Aurora, right there at Eolian, New York? He says it performs 400 abortions every month. 5,000 every year. It is the largest in the Midwest right here. And you have one of those moments, if you're honest, like, God, do you not see? Can you not act? Can you not stop these evil plans of what people are doing? God, where are you? What are you doing? Have you ever been there? God, are you asleep? I had those moments of like, God, it's so dark. Where are you? And then the next day, I was looking more into this 40 days of life, and I came across this video right here. It's Meg Whitman with Cincinnati Right to Life. So I am just hopping on here and I want to tell everybody about some really incredible news. We just saved a baby in front of the Cincinnati Planned Parenthood at 40 Days for Life. We saved a baby from abortion. And this is what the movement is all about. We were out there praying and there was a woman in a car and she had her small child with her and she pulled in the Planned Parenthood driveway. And the Cincinnati Planned Parenthood, if you've been there, is like a fortress. And she pulled down and around and we lost, lost sight of her. And we started praying for her. And then I saw her come back out through the exit. And then she kind of slowly drove in front of us and she went back into the entrance. She was hesitating. And I, I walked over there. I started to walk over there to talk to her and she, she pulled in again. And I, at that moment, I realized I've got to storm heaven with prayers for this woman because she is clearly hesitating. So we prayed and prayed and prayed in front of the play parent just a few more minutes. And then she drove back around out the exit. She stopped and she talked to us for just a minute. She had tears rolling down her face and she said, I am going to keep my baby. I changed my mind. Thank you for being out here. So <laughs> this is what the pro-life movement is all about. We saved a baby today and I'll be honest with you, I had signed up for this 40 Days for Life hour and I have a really busy day and I was thinking, oh goodness, you know, this is, uh, now I got to go do this. It just, you know, it, it feels like a lot. And now that I stood out there and I saw this happen right before my eyes that we saved a baby, it is all worth it. And it tells you how important it is that we stand out there in front of these abortion facilities. We stand there and we have a presence and we say, no, don't do this. We will help you. We will do whatever we can to help you. Sometimes people are just looking for a sign. They're just, they're hesitating and hesitating and then they're looking for a sign. And sometimes the pro-life people outside of those abortion facilities are that sign from God for them. So she didn't go through with it. We are so incredibly happy and thanks be to God. And please, if you heard this video, please sign up for an hour for 40 Days for Life. You will save babies. Thank you for everything all of you guys do for the pro-life movement. Amen. We're at 40 Days for Life is going on right now, and you can go to that website by that name, 40 Days of Life, and sign up for different times that prayer is happening for 30 minutes, an hour, 
There's going to be some prayer vigils that are going on at nighttime, candle lighting. We're signing up ourselves to go down there. I think we're going to go October 18th, uh, a Monday. And so, but all different days to go. And just going there and just being a presence of God and seeing the invisible hand of God work miracles. And that's what we're going to see through the book of Esther. We might not see these supernatural miracles, but we see the invisible hand of God and God's providence. Because as we look at this story, we look at human history, we look at what is happening in our world, and we know that it's not happenstance, and we know that it's not chance. We know that God has called certain people, as the theme of the Esther many times is, for such a time as this. That God, that, that God governs over it all. He is sovereign over it all. He rules. He reigns over all times. And even in the darkest times, and even in the most challenging seasons, he still hears. He still is alive. He still is active. He still is working. And guess what? Many times, just like we'll see through here, he wants to do it through people. And not just him coming down and doing a miracle. He wants to use imperfect people to work the perfect plan of God. Because guess what? God is for his glory. He is for his glory. He's not about Xerxes' glory. He's not about your glory. He's not about my glory. God is about his glory and your good. His plans are for his glory and your good. And his plans are for other people's good. And we are to share that. And here's the good news. As the team comes up to close us, we're going to sing one more song as we close out here, is that there's this good news of that there, even though we've read this very dark intro to this dark book, that dark things are happening, that there is a king above Xerxes. That the book of Esther is part of a collection of books called the Bible. And all the other books of the Bible point to a Savior, a King, a Jesus who sits upon his throne. There is a greater one that is above Xerxes. Xerxes sits on his throne, but guess what? Jesus sits upon the throne of Xerxes, right? And Jesus, Jesus, unlike Xerxes, Xerxes never got off his throne. He never humbled himself. Jesus didn't invite us just to come sit around his throne and look at all of his glory. No, Jesus is the king of kings who came, stepped off of his throne, and dwelt among us. And you and I need to remember in those dark moments that there is a better king. There's a better, better king. King Xerxes says this about the, at the end of his life. This is an inscription that archaeologists have discovered. It says, I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries, which speak all languages, and king of this entire big and far-reaching earth. Xerxes thought he was Jesus. He thought he was all-powerful. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus is a better king. Jesus is a better king with a better kingdom. Xerxes was the son of Darius. Jesus is the son of God. Xerxes never tasted poverty or humility. Jesus tasted both poverty and humility to identify with us. Xerxes used his power to, stand with me, Xerxes used his power to abuse women. Jesus used his power to honor women. Xerxes spent his entire life being served. Jesus spent his entire life serving others. Xerxes killed entire, his armies of millions. Jesus died for his enemies, saving billions. Xerxes sat on his throne in Susa. Jesus sat on his throne in heaven. Xerxes thought he was the most powerful on earth. Jesus made the heavens and the earth. Come on, come on. Xerxes said, thought he would rule over the sun wherever it's set. 
Jesus is the one who made the sun and determines where it goes. Xerxes died one day and no one worships his Xerxes today. Jesus conquered death and today billions worship God and Jesus alone. Xerxes thought he was a man who became God, but only Jesus is God who became man. Xerxes had subjects from many nations, but Jesus has kingdom joyful worshipers from every nation. Xerxes threw wild, enormous banquets and parties, but Jesus is preparing one that is beyond comparison, not even going to come close to what we read there today of what he has prepared for us. Jesus has a better kingdom. He is better than all of that, and we are invited to be part of his kingdom part of his kingdom and his rule and his reign because he is a better king. And when we look around and we only see bad kings, bad people ruling, we need to set our eyes off our own glory, off the things here, and remind ourselves of the one who is worthy of it all. Would you guys stand with me and sing this beautiful song reminding us of his glory?